Okay, that looks like a no. Um, yeah, I, I think um, I could read another section of the Holland book that I think is helpful for sorting out what uh, this chapter 3 is. Genealogic, uh, genealogical analysis will thus foreground the differences between between Oedipal reproduction and other forms of social reproduction, revealing how unlike savage and despotic repression modern Oedipal repression actually is. Indeed, Chapter 3 will demonstrate that the Oedipus is specific to capitalism, even though the incest taboo upon, upon which it appears to be predicated is universal. On the basis of the specific differences of capitalist rep reproduction, such a genealogy will then show where Oedipus came from, that is to say, where the bits and pieces of older forms of social repression came from, that the Oedipus assembles into its own distinctive repressive apparatus. And why such a reproductive apparatus so perfectly suits the requirements of capitalist social production the same time. Deleuze and Guattari's analysis of capitalist production itself will show how it fosters schizophrenia and thus explain why schizophrenia becomes a general and pervasive tendency of capitalist society, despite the counter-tendency of the Oedipus to trap free-form desire in its familial system of reproduction representation. The requirements, procedures, and results of genealogical analysis are quite unlike those of historiographical narrative. In Chapter 3, Deleuze and Guattari do not intend to account historically for the emergence of capitalism from older social forms, nor do they pretend to represent concretely any formerly or actually extant society. A genealogy of the Oedipus requires the reconstruction of historical modes of social production only as ideal types, logical permutations of basic social organization. Okay, I think that's enough. And I think uh, this la last bit um, is something that we need to figure out how to talk about because I think we had tendency yesterday to basically read it as an historic historiographical narrative. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. Um, and it's worth talking about too because we are, as they said um, at the beginning of last section, right, we are working with a kind of universal history here. But as you point out, clearly not the kind of universal history we're used to. So maybe then um, where we can start is, um, so I agree, I don't think this is an, a, a construction of like a continuous flowing narrative of history, um, all leading into like a, a typical sort of like um, Germanic historic school of thought where you, you have primitive stage and that leads into the next stage and that leads into the next stage and everything leads into capitalism. Um, I think the genealogical point is correct in that we're looking at um, what appears to be social structures within um, these older societies and 
I guess not even older societies, actually, in some ways very contemporary. Um, so these non-capitalist societies and looking at different uh, structures within them that seem to have a kind of, um, that seem to kind of gesture toward a pre-capitalist uh, machinery. Yeah, so I think what I want to point out there is because we've been talking about former and pre-capitalist societies, um, but if we follow Holland's reading, that's not what they are doing, right? So he talks about how a genealogy of Oedipus requires the reconstruction of historical modes of production only as ideal types, logical permutations of basic social organization, not um, formally or actually extant society. So we are not talking about actually existing societies when we talk about the despotic or the savage. We are talking about ideal types that are uh, that are constructed to um, show the specificity of the capitalist um, mode of production. Yeah, and I think that's more consistent with even when they talk about like the problem of the Oedipal, pre-Oedipal, and like post-Oedipal, right? Where if you if you start from the centrality of capitalism or of Oedipus, um, of course everything is going to look pre-capital. Yeah, and that's and that's curious because they are so opposed to actually talking in terms of pre-Oedipal. But in a sense, they are here saying that with capitalism, it's kind of, or, well, no, they, no, I haven't really figured out how they reconcile this with the method they are employing here. I'm struggling there too, because they, they do write, um, this is the beginning of 3.1, if the universal comes at the end, the body without organs and desiring production. Under the conditions determined by an apparently victorious capitalism, where do we find enough innocence for generating universal history? Desiring production also exists from the beginning. There is desiring production from the moment there is social production and reproduction, but in a very precise sense. It is true that pre-capitalist social machines are inherent in desire. They code it, they code the flows of desire. So as we can see, right, and I think this is part of where, where some of the struggle comes in, is like, it seems like even even though they would be opposed to like an Oedipal centrality, they seem to be sort of leaning on um, a capitalist um, centrality. And I, I'm wondering if maybe they're going to make the same move to sort of um, decentralize the, the capitalist element or if because it is a real social machine um, and because it's part of the socius and that at a level that um, Oedipus isn't if maybe that's playing into why they're they're willing to perhaps make an exception I think we ought to keep in mind the diagram that's on page 282 
which kind of shows us where we're going. Yeah, I think that made sense because this is, um, I mean, I haven't read this far yet, but it looks like uh, that, particularly that second uh, bottom diagram is something like uh, the tracing of associates or uh, social machines. I mean, I think from this diagram, bottom diagram anyway, you see that, uh, <clears throat> you know, they're creating a model, which is a kind of ideal type, and then mapping it back to these different social formations. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. Because um, the... the um, it looks like the thing they're tracing is the role of the socius or the body without organs. And that seems consistent, too, because at the bottom of that diagram, uh, almost next to like a half arrow, uh, the words schizophrenic process of deterritorialization are, are written. And that seems to me to, to square with what they write at the beginning of 3.2, where like it starts out with that full earth as indivisible. Right at that level of like, um, I think they call it a mega machine earlier, until something like a um, something like the state comes into play and deterritorializes it. Yeah, I think one way of reading it is that you know, I mean, these are the three regimes that they have uh, <clears throat> they had in mind, but um, you know, a lot's happened since the mid-1970s. And um, so you might be able to say, for instance, that the changes that have happened since then have taken us into a new uh, regime, or maybe we're just on the edge of it. But still, the model, the ideal model would apply and so there would be another arrow that goes back to our own time from that ideal model. And from their point of view, the schizophrenic deterioration, deterioration will just continue. So you could think of sliding that box down. I guess, so this is another tension for me in this section where... I, this it doesn't seem like they want to do a teleology, but then they posit this like process that is continuing forward through history, this like schizophrenic deterioration, deterritorialization, and uh, I wonder how we like square that with the fact that they don't want a, te a telos, right, like an end to history. I think that's basically resolved when we stop reading these. Um, the the savage the uh, despotism and uh, capitalism as actually um, historical stages, right? So the, the, those are more uh, those are ideal types, and ideal types exist in the now, right? They are constructed on principles that we have now, and they are. Uh, they they are not in the past in that sense, right? They are not even actual in that sense. Okay. Yeah, I think that works. Um, 
but I do wonder if they are like if they are talking doing a universal history, then like why would they use that? Like like is it just because it's awkward because they're saddled with this sort of like Marxist thing going on where they are going to talk about it in terms of historical stages, but not really mean it in terms of historical stages. You know, I think part of the trick is too though, um, in what Lou read and this is what makes it kind of both intriguing and challenging is I think this, I think it's worth keeping in mind. This is a genealogical engagement with history. So this isn't like a continuous narrative moving toward, um, some sort of like, uh, uh, some sort of larger purpose or end, end goal, right? It's not necessarily that, um, the societies that these anthropologists are studying during the 50s and, and whatnot are necessarily moving into capitalism per se. But I think, genealogically speaking, what's trying to be established is that there are these structures and social machines relative to desiring production that that um, through contingencies, through ironies, through that kind of black humor they talk about elsewhere in 3.1 are going to flow, or actually not even flow, are going to be part of the social production and social reproduction um, of desiring production and are eventually going to lead into like um, more of a capitalist social machine coming into being and therefore like... uh, this is tough, <laughs> but therefore the development of the, the capitalist social machine um, in comparison to societies that don't necessarily have that machine. Uh, one of the things I'm reminded of is Epidocles. You know, Epidocles was first one to try to find some way of expressing the relationship between Parmidean being and Her- Her- uh, Heraclitian being, you know, being as static, being as dynamic. And his model was that um, you had these uh, movements based on love and strife. So the movement based on love would create these whole things. But then the whole things would start degenerating until, as you're getting to the other end of the spectrum of strife, then you just had body parts moving around. So what Zizek calls the body without organs. Uh, Sorry, the organs without body. And uh, so it seems to me that you know, kind of put in this tradition in the Western worldview of going between nihilistic extremes and and the idea that you'd oscillate between these nihilistic extremes. You know, it strikes me that uh, this, you know, Deleuze and Guattari are are kind of going to the nihilistic extreme of everything fragmenting into these desiring machines. And then based on that perspective, then they're looking back into history and they're saying, well, what are the the kinds of regimes that 
that our model helps us pick out. And so the, you know, the, the primitive model is where, you know, there's writing on bodies. Um, and then the, 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 and then that gets consolidated into the despotic model where there's one body that's important. And then, and then the, the, then, you know, in the capitalist system, it's kind of like there's a, um, you know, it becomes bodiless in some sense. You know, the the movement is is from the bodies to to this ideal thing called capital, which is a horde, basically that allows for the creation of money. So 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 their model is this tendency of history to go toward this nihilistic extreme of total fragmentation. But just they just take that that extreme and project it back to get these ideal types. But you could imagine a system where you're more like Hegelian, which was the opposite, where you go to the nihilistic extreme of holism, and then project back like Hegel did. I like what Lou was saying about how these um, sort of pre-capitalist societies aren't actually historical ages because. You know, I think that Lou was right that these that Deleuze and Guattari are sort of self-consciously constructing these stages as models so that they can trace a genealogy and be like, this is where one part of Oedipus originated, this is where another part originated, and then eventually use it to critique capitalism. Um, I think that's the best, the closest I can come to squaring what they're doing and making it make sense but i'd be careful with like calling what they're saying is like nihilistic because it strikes me as very opposite of that like they're posited a theory of mind that they believe in enough to try and you know assert like basically create a genealogy for it uh by explaining like this is where you know the body was you know this is how the body was constructed in this in a tribal society this is how the body is constructed in a despotic society and it's all building up to them talking about the body without organs and these decoded flows and and stuff like that okay so when we are going back to this aspect of universal history being retrospect or as we as they say at the beginning of the third chapter Universal is not only retrospective, it is also contingent, singular, ironic, and critical. I think um, we should take a look again at the last bit of the section we read yesterday, where they talk about the problem of applying classic classes in retrospect, because we kind of um, skipped over that. This, this section was read and everyone kind of said, this was very clear and everyone understood it. But I think this last bit about the classes is exactly an example of the problems with how they construct universal history in retrospect. So has anyone any ideas about this example, how they use classes there? 
well, to me, it strikes me as like what I was saying earlier, where it seems like they're kind of struck, stuck with like awkward baggage from the Mar- Marxism thing, right? Where they're going to try to take Marx and do a similar sort of universal history thing to what Marx did, but they're doing it self-consciously, right? Like you were saying with that quote, where it's ironic and critical. It's They understand that it's not exactly maybe a, a accurate model, but they're using it to sort of push a theory that they think is useful, which is the, 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 the sort of, you know, the psychologies they were advancing in the first section. You know, one, one thing that strikes me is, um, so right. Marx is analyzing capitalism in terms of surplus value related to like, uh, right. Labor value. And even at that level, I think it's fair to say he's still dealing with the abstract axiomatic of the capitalist machine, right? And and I think that's relevant because these two sections, especially this one, are dealing with not only the socius, but territorialization. Um, in contrast, it seems that uh, section two that we're reading is taking surplus value elsewhere and to say that it's it's actually not a surplus value of um, abstracities, it is a surplus value of code. And so I think in the same way, they, they say something like that about class, where class is um, an overflow of code, I think it is, or cast is an overflow of code. No, I think in, in the primitive, you have this surplus of code. And so then the, 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 if, if the capitalist is a deficit of code, then you would expect that the despotic body would be in the middle, would be, you know, somewhere between those two. But then they're bringing in caste, which is the Indo-European thing that Dumazil comes up with. But you could see caste as kind of like <clears throat> taking the primitive structure, which is... Uh, filial, and uh, creating different realms, the different castes that are not supposed to interact. They're not supposed to marry. They're not supposed to marry. Uh, They're like moieties in the sense that you're not supposed to marry outside of your caste. But but from a practical point of view, that's impossible. And and, uh, so the interesting thing about this is the Maharabhata. Right, which is an, uh, the major Indian epic, and there's uh, uh, this one woman, forgotten her name right now, but um, she's married to five husbands. So the 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 Pandavas, and so the 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 five husbands represent the five classes, and the idea is to show that woman, when she marries, becomes the class of the husband. So it's actually the woman that's going up and down between classes. Um, but the, the men are stuck in their class. And each class has its dharma that it tries to fulfill. I think this, um, this short sentence, well, relatively short sentence might help too. But the ranks are inseparable from the primitive territorial coding process. 
just, just as castes are inseparable from the overcoating practiced by the imperial state. While classes are relative to the process of an industrial and commodity production decoded under the conditions of capitalism, all history can therefore be read under the sign of classes, but by observing the rules set forth by Marx, and bearing in mind that classes are the so-called negative of castes and reigns. Uh, to read the last sentence, for it is certain that the regime of decoding does not signify the absence of organization, but rather the most somber organization, the harshest compatibility with the axiomatic replacing the codes and incorporating them always a contrario. So it sounds like they, it sounds like they think that classes are some kind of uh, abstraction of caste. Uh, well, okay, that's, yeah, I think that's close to what I would say they think. But instead of using the word abstraction, I'd say that be, the, uh, the process of decoding makes things more compatible, according to them, right? The more decoded things become, the less obscure they are in their sort of reality. Ironically, right? That's the sort of au contrario thing that they, they bring up. Yeah, and that's why I mentioned the... Um the abstract nature of it, because uh, I think yesterday we were talking about like, if you're looking for structure at the level of the mental or even of the abstract, like we would under, under capitalism, right, where there is that abstract axiomatic, that's not going to work in these societies because of, if anything, the structures are in the practice, they're in the, they're in the actual, uh, because these are societies where the territorial machine and the, the body of the earth or the, that socius are, are still intimately linked with the people. You're not going to find the structures in their minds. They're in the world with them and with those machines. So we have moved on a bit, but I have a note on the translation of this section that you just read on this last but um, where so I don't have the French text in front of me right now I haven't found the bit yet there but in the German translation um, where the English translation talks about compatibility the German translation talks uh, uses um, uh, berechenbar machen um, making foreseeable making um, Uh, calculatable found this curious hmm. I think that seems to make sense to me though right because because that's, that's the irony of things becoming decoded I think that they're getting at this where like and then you know things become more and more decoded there's less there's more and more pathways for people to flow you know desire and capital and stuff um, but ironically that just makes the flows themselves more apparent i guess makes them more visible foreseeable like that makes sense to me well and i might say too like if you have an overflow of code that's a different like that's something these societies seem to be able to To really manage, right? They have the way of displacing the disequilibrium. Um, but when I think of capitalism, right, um, 
for Deleuze and Guattari, capitalism is intimately um, a part of decoding flows. And so, like, they, they even compare, right? Uh, right there, right? Uh, the primitive machine is not ignorant of its change, commerce, and history. It exercises them, localizes them, cordons them off, encasts them, and maintains the merchant and the blacksmith in a subordinate position, so that the flows of exchange and the flows of production do not manage to break the codes in favor of their abstract or fictional quantities. And isn't that also what Oedipus, the fear of incest, is about? The fear of a decoded flow. So it seems like there's something that's going to happen where, where capitalism is going to deal with not only the over, the overflow of code, um, especially like uh, in the abstract sense, but also in dealing with how to decode those overflows, I'm thinking. I wanted to talk about what you said, where you talked about um, displacing the disequilibrium, because um, it became really clear to me uh, the way that like, so Kent was talking about caste systems, right? And so you don't have to deal with the fact that the Brahmin people at the top of the caste have access to more material goods. If you can explain it away by being like, oh, well, you know, the untouchables at the bottom, that's their dharma. Right. You just you take the disequilibrium that's apparent and then you displace it with the, you know, a intellectual some sort of idealized concept. Mm, but we've got to be careful, too, though, because like it's in the practice, not in the idealize the ide- idealizing, it seems to me. I think that's definitely fair, because it, as much as I like, you know, I, I can only describe the caste system in reference to the sort of imperial overcoding that they're talking about. But the practice, I think, also still speaks to that. As far as I know, I, I haven't actually lived the praxis, the praxis of the you know caste system. So I should be careful. You're right. Well, it's tough to me, too, because like... I think of India and its history, like it might be risky to use that example just because they're drawing on uh, different anthropologies here. Although I'm, I struggle too, because I didn't, I'm not, I don't know these words well enough to really know how, um, how a caste system exists in something like, um, like these tribal societies. No, no, no. Well, okay. So, um, so the caste system as we know it is kind of universal among Indo-European peoples. Um, whether other tribal societies have anything like caste—that's a—that's a, you know a question for anthropology. But, um, uh, but, 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 but all the Indo-European cultures. Are based on caste, and, and and the idea is that you have this separation between, say, you know, like the the royal caste and the priestly caste, and the the warriors and the the people who uh, work the land, things like that, and, and 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 then each caste has its god, you know, pre-Christian. They all have their own god, and and the idea is that you you stay you stick in your caste. You don't mar- you don't 
you don't try to get outside your cast, uh, but you can marry someone from another cast. And so wi- women are kind of, females are kind of uh, fungible in the system in that they, they can move up and down. But their children are of the cast of the father, so it's a patriarchal. I think even in that example, that's like less specific and more abstract. Um, you, I can see at least how there's that code is just there to displace the or to like you know render. I'm struggling to find a good word for it to make the disequilibrium right between someone who's a priest and someone who's a you know a duke or whatever and has a a fife a fiefdom in a feudal society in a different feudal society and, and and the code is there to just sort of displace that right to sort of make it so that you know there's not really a disequilibrium here god god wants it that way and then it's acted out as if there isn't really a disequilibrium well you know the, i mean i think we should go back to what codes are you know like for instance there's the ascii code right so that takes these uh, figures, and it just arbitrarily assigns them to a binary, so that so that so when the when the you know this is this kind of extreme that uh, Deleuze and Guattari are, are uh, seizing upon. You know, like computer computers are that that uh, that extreme example where uh, it's completely arbitrary which which binary pattern a particular character figure, you know, is assigned in the ASCII code. And, and the same is true of DNA. It's arbitrary which amino acid is asso- uh, assigned a particular uh, codon and, uh, or, 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 or word out of codon. And, um, and so it's that arbitrariness, and and this is something that Deleuze is very concerned with in her his earlier works is the the kind of complete capriciousness of uh, and and the the role of chance. So and, and interestingly enough, I mean there are different codon systems in genetics where where there's slight differences between the uh, various. Uh, and so even the even the codon system is not just one uh, mapping. There 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 seem to be a kind of evolution or a divergence that happened in codon systems in genetics of different species. So 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 the so the, the idea is that the coding is arbitrary, but definite. And so just like the cast, which cast you are born into, that's an arbitrary assignment. But then you're stuck in that cat. Hmm. I mean, I, I think of codes as being more, more of like um, sort of semiosis or those um, semi uh, semiotic, the signifying chains linked with flows of desire and desiring production, which I think might actually be good to contrast with the territorializing machine in this section in that I think the territorializing machine is more concerned with uh, the bodies related to those codes 
and how to sort of um, how to sort of partition uh, not only people but I, I think even objects. I like that better. Yeah, but I, I, unfortunately, I don't think it's correct. Um, the the so so if we go back to Desus Suser, right or. Uh, Oh, what's the name of the guy who was in um, linguistics? Forgotten his name. Anyway, so so the guy who was doing the linguistics, that where structuralism came from, uh, he uh, <clears throat> you know he talks about the phonemes and how the phonemes are basically a diacritical system. Uh, and, and so, and so those phonemes are mapped to the, to the mouth. They're different positions in the mouth and different ways the breath is associated with those positions in the mouth. Right. And then, and then, uh, De Saucer, he basically took that system, uh, and, and, uh, looked at it in terms of, uh, Actually, Desus hair might have been earlier, but anyway, the 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 point is that in in uh, Desus hair's thing, he's basically saying all of the different elements of the semiotic system are all diacritically relation, related to each other, and if you if you change one, um, then they all change. But neither of those. Uh, conceptual systems about linguistics or signs deal with the coding right so it's a it's a it's kind of a new advance to go look at the coding and and that advance more or less came about because of computer science and the the realization of how coding works in computer science and so when you when you when you go to that level and you have the coding um then you realize that that the not only are the things diacritically related to each other and and like mapped to the different parts of the mouth, but it, but in terms of pure information, they are distinguished from each other by these binary codes, and that the binary codes are um, arbitrary. The assignment is arbitrary. So uh, let me try and walk out how I'm interpreting this then. So they write, to code desire and the fear, the anguish of decoded flows, is the business of the socius. So, right, like, it looks like they are talking about the socius and, and coding flows of desire. Um, right, so capitalism liberates the flows of desire. Uh, and that seems to me, here we go. At capitalism's limit, the deterritorialized associate gives way to the body of the organs, and the decoded flows throw themselves into desiring production. So it does seem to me that um, uh, coding is related to the, the, the flows of desiring production, whereas uh, about the territorial machine, they write, that is because the primitive machine subdivides the people, but does so on an indivisible earth, where the connective, disjunctive, and the conjunctive relations of each section are inscribed along with the other relations. Thus, for example, the coexistence or complementarity of the section chief and the guardian of the earth. 
So just for a minute, let's, let's go back to Dan Smith. And he says that there's three parts to the uh, Keynesian economic model that they're using. You know, there's the flows, there's the, uh, the stores, and, uh, and there's the codes. Um, but an embodiment of that is system dynamics. And you can have system dynamics models. And so the way a system dynamics model works is that you have these, uh, these, these stores in which, a, in which values come in to the stores. You know, it's a model that's, that's uh, modeling uh, how variables change in relationship through time, right? And so, but the model has all these stores in it. And functions put are, like, are, are like putting the liquids into the stores. Right. And so the functions are the flows because you'll have the input variables based on uh, what's happening in other stores. And then they'll have a function that takes those input variables and creates a, the variable that's now going into a store. So the, so the flows are functions and the stores are variables and the codes are the way that the functions work. In other words, the, the functions are going from store to store to store, but the but the way they work is the coding, which is arbitrary, but it has to do with a particular uh, way that the inputs are turned into the output. So that's kind of like how a systems dynamics model works, kind of in brief. I'm not sure where you're disagreeing with me. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just trying to, uh, you know, offer more information about what uh, what may be going on here. I, of course, I'm not sure. I'm just trying to say that, uh, you know, there's this broader background that we ought to consider to when we, if we're trying to figure out what they're trying to say. I think all of that squares pretty well. Like, I, I don't know. It's, it, it makes sense to me, but I'd like to hear if anyone has any like questions. Well, I think we have kind of ventured from where we started about universal history and genealogy. But I, I guess to return to that subject, I thought the passage Lou read about the um, the retrospective nature of universal history, and even where they write uh, capitalism, capitalism is the end of remembers the end of history of the end of universal history but i think that helps maybe even put that into a broader perspective for us yeah, yeah. So, capitalism being the end of something that's actually an interesting thing because um i think we need to figure out of what this end means here because it's definitely not a fukuyama uh, end of history thing um and it can't really be that capitalism is, or let's say, capitalism being the end of universal history is interesting in the sense that they start by saying that capitalism is the precondition of producing universal history, right? So universal history is also not an actual historical process, but something is about but, um, the thing we write from capitalism. 
Yeah, I think that's well said. I think that gets at like what's confusing about this for me. Uh, you know, I've read genealogies sort of before this, right? Like I've read history of sexuality and I've read the genealogy of morals. And this one is sort of self-conscious about the sort of production that it's going in, in a way, especially the Nietzsche kind of isn't. So I think Nietzsche almost... I don't know. I, I don't. I don't want to get too sidetracked into talking about whether or not Nietzsche is self-conscious when he's constructing, you know, this sort of narrative about the slave mor- revolt in morality or not. But I think the confusion comes in for me when I'm thinking about it in terms of like a Marx right or a Hegelian thing, which where it is obviously like intentionally literal that like oh yeah this is the end of history history is going towards a a thing this is the end of history and 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 with this reading that same type of phrasing and having it be kind of intentionally ironic or self-conscious is confusing at first but i'm starting to get the like hang of it yeah it seems to be a similar problem like that of oedipus right where if you're within capitalism, like Lucid, and you're writing a history um, through capitalism, then it only made sense to start sort of like with a pre-capitalism and how things are eventually going to lead into uh, capitalism. And then from there, it seems like you, you really won't be able to go anywhere else. Yeah, I see what you're saying about the Oedipus thing. Or, uh, Though I do wonder why this is, it feels so different reading the way that Deleuze and Guattari look back at at history through capitalism versus the way they look back at human development through Oedipus. My first thought goes back to capitalism as a social machine and therefore a socius as opposed to Oedipus, which seems to like try to write itself on uh, the body without organs. That makes sense to me. I was thinking along those lines, but I was thinking more like, well, capitalism is material forces, so it makes sense for them to not engage with it, you know, as if it doesn't exist. Whereas with, like you were saying, Oedipus is just trying to write itself on the body without organs. They, they will engage with it as if it is a fiction trying to write itself. I, I think one way to think about this is that it's kind of a reverse Mona, Mona uh, what's his name? Jack Monod, a reverse kind of Monod system where, you know, the idea of Monod is that it's uh, things are teleonomic. In other words, they're going towards something, even though you don't know what it's going to go for. But by by taking chance and then the coding system, which is necessity and then chance again and then necessity is another coding system. You 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 you. You focus down on some endpoint that you are going to hit eventually, but it's open what the endpoint is all the way along until you get there. But I think that what they're describing is the opposite of that. It's a divergent system. And you know what's what's interesting is that there's more divergent functions in mathematics than there are convergent. But all of math just focuses on the convergent one. But uh, Deleuze has this thing for divergence. And so if you think of this as a kind of reverse monode system where instead of a teleonomy, you're going toward some kind of heat death, which is fully schizophrenic. But all, all along the way, there's these, uh, these uh, loosenings of the code 
and then eventually and 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 but those loosenings of the code get cause greater and greater divergence so this is maybe a sidebar but what you were just saying, Kent, reminded me of the the idea of like dark delusionism, whatever that like book called Dark Deluse. I've never read it. I've always been sort of curious. Is that kind of the idea that the sort of deterritorialization, the sort of schizophrenization of flows makes everything, you know, approach like a heat death? Well, I, I haven't read that book either, but I'm uh, but I'm uh, I'm equally uh, interested in it. Um but I can't tell whether or not, you know, it's a serious book or not. I, I, you know, I keep asking people about it. It's a future conversation, future conversation. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but if you think of it as a, diver- you know, because Deleuze has a big thing about divergence. And that is a part of math, which is just not developed at all. The, 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 uh, the divergent parts of math. And um, because what can you do with it? It's not converging toward anything. It's actually everything's falling away from everything else. So, but if you see history as that kind of falling away, then then what you're going to get as your stages are as the divergences, as as the coatings get looser, right? You're going to get more and more divergent, but you're going to get these regimes of you know, a particular level of divergence. So if you start off with the territorial machine, you know, and then and then you go to the despot, you've got loosening of codes, right? And then from there to capitalism, even more loosening of codes. And then the ideal is the schizophrenic ideal of total loosening of codes, complete divergency. But it means that there could be, we could be in a time that's post-capitalist, that's completely different with global capital and uh, uh, globalization. You know, it's very different today than in the 70s. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons it's often referred to as late-stage capitalism. But that term is already really old, or isn't it? Like, I think that started after World War II, somewhere? Adorno, Adorno uses that term. Uh, exactly. Like, th- that was already a term when, when uh, Anti-Oedipus was written. It's so funny because... Adorno uses that term, then everyone applies it to him. Yeah, yeah I think that's part of the irony of it, too, is um, we've been in late-stage capitalism for easily, um, easily 60 years, if not longer, right? Uh, yeah, basically since this book was written. <laughs> exactly. You know, because it's uh, the whole the whole thing of derivatives, for instance. There's more money in derivatives than any other kind of money. And derivatives are just spreadsheets that have a whole, that ho- have a whole lot of factors that um, feed into a decision kind of like gate of whether, you know, the derivative has come due. 
based on all the factors. And then people lose and gain money based on the, you know. And so the the derivatives themselves are kind of like this, um, you know, because it's a spreadsheet and and that's exactly, you know, this, this uh, thing of stocks and flows is basically the structure of a spreadsheet. And it's basically, the derivatives are basically spreadsheets. So, but there's more money in spreadsheets than there is, you know, there's more imaginary money captured in spreadsheets than there are any other kind of money. So, so what you were just saying about spreadsheets, I think gets at something I was thinking would be a good thing to talk about for the review proce- uh, process, where uh, the surplus, surplus value of code, I'm not sure if spreadsheets are a good example, but it sort of struck me that that is that they might be while we were talking about spreadsheets. And um, I think it would be really good to explain what they mean by surplus value of code, because I'm not 100% sure I get it. Well, my, my idea was when they said that, I mean, I'm, of course, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm just as lost as everyone else. But the, the, what struck me there is overcoding. And definitely that's something about the primitives because their languages were overcoded. Farther you go back, the more complex languages get, not the simpler. And all of these uh, marriage structures, our marriage structures are much simpler today than all of these uh, marriage structures from all over the world. So I think where I was thinking that the sort of derivatives that you were talking about were a good example is because like you're saying, they aren't anything that produce, they don't produce value themselves, right? They don't do anything. They're not really like capital in the same way a cash register is or a a lathe at a factory is, right? But at the same time, these derivatives are circulated as if they had value. And it seems to me that the reason they're circulated that way is because they code all of the transactions that are going on. Um, I think we want to be careful, especially walking in the derivatives, because at that point, we've left the, um, I think what they call the primitive machines that... They, they use to explain the, the idea of surplus value of code. Uh, for instance, they're talking about an economy without a net investment, which is part of the reason why this economy um, in these societies doesn't need to worry about uh, balancing price and quantity and all that because the, the disequilibrium gets displaced. So they, they write... The mainspring of such an economy is a veritable surplus value of code. Each detachment from the chain produces, on one side or the other, in the flows of production, phenomena of excess and deficiency, phenomena of lack and accumulation, which will be compensated for not by, I'm sorry, which will be compensated for by non-exchangeable elements of the acquired prestige or distributed consumption type, And then they write an example, which is a quote. So, quote, the chief converts this perishable wealth into imperishable prestige through the medium of spectacular feasting. The ultimate consumers are in this way the original producers. So so that's kind of a reference back to Bataille, 
and the 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 idea that you know like the indians in the northwest they um they would create stuff all year long in order to de- just destroy it and that's an example of a general economy so the and the, the whole the whole purpose was to produce prestige for the for the one who could destroy the most stuff so i guess the idea there is that these sort of social relations like between chief and people are the code in society and that that can produce value itself. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. I read it just a little bit different. I read it more like it's back to that signifying chain. And so there's like with these flows of desire, um, and, and those um, signifying chains, there's a way that things are signified and, and there are these signifiers present. And so something like accumulating a lot of food for the chief gives the producers of that food a lack and gives the, the chief an accumulation. So, right, like you could call that a disequilibrium because now, you're, you're, uh, now your producers can't eat, right? Or can't eat enough or what have you. Uh, and so the way that that gets compensated for is not by um, an exchange of the food per se, but of, um, of the prestige of hosting a feast and allowing uh, those producers to come to the feast, come to this kind of party and partake in like uh, sort of the... I, I dare say sort of the glory of it, which seems to me like even the idea of having like a spectacular or glorious feast, right? You know, that that's a very meaningful thing. So, okay. So the signifying chains that you talked about are the mechanism by which this value, this meaningful, uh, uh, what was it? Like a meaningful feast is produced. So if you were going to go to this kind of feast, right, I think the idea is that the surplus value of the code is sort of like the overflowing of how much uh, of the meaning of it. Or to say it differently, like if you've ever been to one of these kind of grand parties, uh, and we're probably going to have to take a step back because if you're like me and have been to one of those parties, it's uh, extremely depressing (laughs) in every way. But uh, in, in this context, I don't think it would be. So if you went to one of these parties or these these grand feasts, there's sort of like an overflow of it all, of the grandosity of it, of the meaning of it, which means that um, in that way, what I'm reading here is like, because the code overflows with desire, it's not surplus labor at the abstract level. It's almost like a surplus. It's almost like a surplus power of meaning or a surplus coding. Okay, I think I think that's starting to make sense. So the idea is that the surplus value of code is that code is sort of open ended like that. Like it can be overwhelmed or 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 I I don't know. Overdetermined isn't the right word, but something like that where everyone. It it, it it goes beyond meaning, I guess. I don't know. Well, well, I I think when you said overdetermined, you got it exactly right. They they 
to me, the surplus value of code is that there's distinctions piled on distinctions piled on distinctions. That's why the language is complex. That's why the the uh, the the uh, the the kinship system is complex because it's 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 many layers of these distinctions that are that are piled on top of each other, and because those distinctions shift in re- in relationship to each other, sometimes you get this amazing creation of of value. Right. If all of the stars align in that complex system of distinctions, then you get glory, or you get you get uh, you get the, the the value, and the people are competing for those for those uh, those extraordinary values within that complex overcoded system, and that's the general economy. So I think we want to consider this passage. Because they actually do give us an idea of what what they're talking about um, more directly than I think uh, in other places. So they write on page 150, surplus value of code is the primitive form of surplus value in as much as it corresponds to Moss's celebrated formula. The spirit of the thing given or the force of circumstances that requires that gifts be reciprocated with interest being territorial signs of desire and power and principles of abundance and fructification of wealth. Far from being a pathological consequence, the disequilibrium is functional and fundamental. So I, I mean, I'm reading that at a basic level of like, it's about the spirit of the feast or in a sense, the prestige of the feast is an overflow of the actual material food present. So that reminds me of something in Nietzsche, but I need to find the the where it's from. <laughs> so I see some questions about language and simplification in that. Uh, I'll only say this: like when it comes to an oral culture, and I, I have to look up the scholar I'm thinking of here, but when it comes to an oral culture that doesn't have a form of writing, language is a way of sort of everything being interwoven together. So like if someone were to ask you what a tree is, you wouldn't say like, uh, oh yeah, the tree is this um, this bark and, and it stems up from the ground and it has leaves and all that. You would go show them a tree, right? You would say probably follow me and we'll go look at one. So in that way, like, language operates sort of at a level of you and the world being interwoven together. What's interesting is that writing systems have this same characteristic that the the Chinese writing system, the Mayan writing system, the hieroglyphs of Egypt, they're all super complex. And alphabetic systems, the earliest ones they found were spin-offs from uh, from Egypt in a mining a mining company i mean not company but a mining settlement um but but all of those you know like the 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 cuneiforms they were very complex systems 
and they got radically simplified when the alphabet came in. So the, you know, even though those are late, those writing systems are late from the point of view of um, primitive man. Still, they the writing systems themselves started off with this phase that was incredibly complex, where there was a lot of overcoding. Example of overcoding is that Sumerian and uh, uh, what's it called the Semitic language Akkadian. Uh, it, it appears that Sumerian and Akkadian were married together as uh, you know l- language that were used you know in in Sumeria from the very beginning. That's what they're not now seem to be uh, the papers seem to be saying, and so uh, so 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 that's an example of overcoding. You know, two languages, same writing system, both used at the same time for the same writing system, and and then the writing system's very very complex. And then, and then when you get the alphabet, you move to a completely different system of coding. So the thing I was trying to find was like, I, I, I'm of the impression that there's something about the surplus value of signs in Nietzsche somewhere or another where like meaning becomes really, really flexible for him in his theory, but I can't really find it anywhere, though it was a good excuse for me to pull up that a copy of Psychic Life of Power I have, which is a fun book. What's psychic? Is that a Nietzsche book you're saying? Uh, psychic Life of Power is a Judith Butler book about um, oh. subjectivity, and it's an interesting book. Oh. But she talks about Nietzsche. It's not really relevant. I just I oh, okay. like that stuff. <laughs> sure. Anyway, I think their innovation here, I mean, you've got surplus value, right, in economics. Their innovation is to say, well, in the primitive situation, you have surplus value of code. In other words, the code itself uh, becomes a surplus. Should we understand it just in the sort of tribal situation that they talk about, or should we understand it as a sort of facet of the um, stance that they're taking about the nature of desiring production? Because I think that the latter makes more sense to me. Yeah, Yeah, I think you're right about that. Okay. I think you've got to keep in mind we're... We're trying to understand the primitive territorializing machine uh, in this section. And so, like, I think at some level, what's going to change is the way things get territorialized by territorializing machines, right? As in, like, the, the territorializing machine becomes, like... It's not that sort of gift-giving um, potlatch thing. It's a factory and it's a state. So it won't be the surplus value of code. It's going to be the surplus of labor. And, and at that level, it's going to conform to the abstract axiomatic of uh, the social machine of capitalism. Okay. Or like, 
internally, the the state comes in and deterritorializes um, the this society where the the level of territorialization is that of uh, people and the earth, right? The the earth being the like. I think it was like a mega machine they called it, but the Earth being uh, that a different kind of socius, and that uh, what will happen is the state will deterritorialize it and and then partition it differently. I just had a thought that maybe their model is that you know you know you have connective and this disjunctive and then. Um, Conjunctive synthesis. Maybe the primitive is conjunctive, and the uh, you know the caste system is certainly disjunctive in the despotic system. And then and then maybe the capital one is is conjunctive. Maybe the the different synth- I haven't seen them say that, and I don't remember them saying that. Maybe that's kind of where the different qualities come from from these uh, from these different syntheses. Well, they do write that before the state um, on the the socius of the earth, uh, the three syntheses are inscribed. Oh, yeah, that's another thing I wanted to mention is that I think the the prior one of the primary motives here is to absorb the whole thing that Derrida came up with of uh, writing and logocentrism. So they just they just they just put the inscription in the very beginning uh, and made it part of the primitive system, which then is going to be transformed as you go through these phases. But the 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 writing is there from the beginning. But 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 the ingenious thing when I read it, I thought the ingenious thing was making it the writing on the body, the tattoo, making it tattooing. Which is definitely associated with primitive cultures. The, the the problem is that primitive cultures, as they were studying them, weren't back in time. They were they were contemporary. Yeah, and I think that helps put this in perspective too, because like they are looking at cultures like these. They're referencing things written in like 1950 sets, right, where people are going to these these different societies and you know in some ways this is like an extension of um of that whole like oh well we've reached the apex of society so let's look at where we came from right uh and you do and what they're doing is looking at contemporary societies as though they have the trajectory into capitalism right as though they're going to follow this necessary path Uh, obviously Deleuze and Guattari I don't think subscribe to that notion, but uh, I do think um, it's because I, I did look up a little bit more about structuralist anthropology and like Leach and um, and uh, Levi Strauss, and I know that Levi Strauss was looking for more universal ways of understanding people. So it seems like that right there is going to be a major divergence here. Yeah, in the seventies, when I was reading this stuff originally, uh, Leach was very good because uh, he he at least wrote things that were understandable. Yeah, and Deleuze and Guattari are, are looking up to him and um, 
the second author, uh, Fortes, who was also 1953, where they, we might need to spend some time going into this too, they, in the distinction of all things not being um, purely filial, right? So it's not like there's the filial and then the alli- the allegiance is just sort of like an extension of that. It's it's actually more like the filial and allegiance are sort of counterposed in the same way that like uh, I think it was production and labor are, and therefore like just like labor falls back on production, so too does the allegiance fall back on. Um, filial. I think that was, if I remember correctly, that's how it was phrased. You know, I, I, I like to just talk about something for a minute. You know, uh, whenever we talk about primitive, um, what comes to mind to me is always this book called Contact. And so the, so in New Guinea, um, up on the plateau, um, there were nine million people when the uh, when the Germans and Australians flew in uh, onto that plateau in in planes, and they had cameras. And so, in this book, Contact, they've captured the the faces of these primitive peoples as they saw the the white man for the first time. And so as far as I know, those are the only pictures of first contact that were ever captured. And the shock on the faces of the, you know, the people being invaded <clears throat> was the most incredible pictures of shock I've ever seen. And so... um so up on that plateau, they they were uh, uh, below the plateau were headhunters. So so those nine million people were kind of stuck up there, and they were stuck up there. You know, uh, they've been they've been up there for uh, nine thousand years, and uh, uh, the. Um, and they had invented agriculture themselves in that time. So it was an independent invention of agriculture. I think that's the only other one. Um, and they were, uh, I can't remember how many languages, but there were like a hundred languages, say, and a hundred different cultures up on that plateau. And so it was very, very um, uh, cut up into the, the it, no one had no one had ever achieved hegemony over the whole plateau as far as i know and they were all all broken up into these language groups that couldn't talk to each other and were constantly at war with each other very complex cultures and so i think that that plateau is kind of interesting petri dish of what the primitive is um you know the primitive is very complex language, very complex culture, uh, all uh, completely differentiated from each other uh, socially, and uh, you know I don't know how how the I, I I don't know how the marriage worked, whether they married between tribes or not, but 
but the tribes kept their identities uh, through time. And so it's just a very interesting case study, um, like a pure view of this primitive thing as the, as it was discovered when the the colonialists went in there. And so that might be because we did have one other follow up question about like um, the ego, and um, hang on one second. Uh, so one of the questions we got is, and it's worth discussing their use of ego here, individuation of people within the older socius is a big topic. So this might be a good time to go into the, the filial and the um, the allegiant, um, unless somebody wants to go somewhere else first. Are there any questions at this point? Nobody's going to comment on me saying ego, like let go my ego, let go my ego. Ah, there we go. You had a pity laugh. I never turned down a pity laugh. Uh, okay, so let me see if I can find the page then. So on page 148 sits, they seem to go more deeply into this idea of the filial and the, um, the allegiant or use their word uh, alliance to talk about um, the, the declension of the primitive machine and so they're so therefore like uh, the territorializing machine right and so to go right toward that ego concept the way I was reading that is where they write the essence of this concept which resembles the Roman distinction between agnation and cognation uh, and this is in reference to filiation uh, as complementary with allegiant. Uh, the, the essence of this concept, which, which resembles the Roman distinction between agnation and cognation, is that any capital E ego is related to the kinsman of his two parents because he is married. However, the cross ties linking the different parent patrilineages Laterally are not felt by the people themselves to be of the nature of the descent. So I was reading that in the sense of like, if you read the ego as sort of like an eye, or if you take it more functionally, like I did yesterday, in sense of like, there's this part of the unconscious that has to, you know, um, has to sort of keep the id in check and regulate desire and work with the reality um, principle. It seems like what uh, this quote is talking about is that um, when you try to absorb the alliance in the fil filial, you end up trying to argue things like the person's ego or egos themselves are all derivative and almost like inherited from parents. And uh, at that level, right, like if you want to take that toward like a self, um, at that point, like the self would be something you almost like you understand purely through um, the through your lineage, which negates the um, or rather which excludes the alliant function where you're you're you have a more horizontal relationship to power and you're you're doing things that are not necessarily reliant on um, your relations or your biological relations. 
so this is one of those quotes where they're they're quoting it, but it's not it's not exactly what they believe, right? Because the quote goes. Because uh, the quote, the way the tone of the quote makes me think that the the author thinks that like oh well egos are you know descendant that they come down through you know filial bonds but what you just said seems to you know be that delusion guattari think the opposite or at least think something different so it's worth noting that the quote i just read is from leech and during that during this quote he actually is referencing um like he even references somebody in the quote, so it's almost like there's a paraphrase within a quote within Deleuze and Guattari's voice, right? Sort of a story within a story within a story. Um, but I think what they're trying to do with this quote from Leach is point out that, so like whereas Fortes would say that the alliant um, is a complementary filiation. So the when you form an alliance, you're doing it in complement um, and almost like uh, an expression of the filial. I think Deleuze and Guadri are agreeing with Leach that actually um, things are happening in society not because of a pure uh, pure lineage um, rationality or like uh, the society and the territorialization going on is not operating purely through who your parents are and who your family tree connects you with, but it's actually working also with the uh, within with alliances. So, like I gave the example yesterday of like there's a way of understanding yourself like through your father and through your through that like uh, family tree, and then there's actually dealing with like going to work with your father where at that point, like there's a political level. Surely you guys have met fathers and sons who work together or a father who taught at a school and the son who went to the school or some gender variation whereby they, they say something like, well, we weren't father and son at that point. We were teacher and student, uh, boss and worker. So right like that, at that level, you're talking about something more like the Alliance where powers not dependent so much on that, like that vertical lineage. Okay. That makes sense to me. And then I went back and looked at the quote. So it's Fortis that they're sort of disagreeing with and Leech that they're more on the agreeing with. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. As I read it, read it, they're agreeing with Leech and they're agreeing with Leech and his disagreement with Fortes because he's, he's criticizing Fortes for, Trying to like uh, trying to keep everything in the filial. Okay, gosh, yeah, okay. <laughs> in fact, to make it a little bit clearer, the quote ends with the continuity of the structure vertically through time is adequately expressed through the anatomic transmission of a patrilineage name, but the continuity of the structure laterally is not so expressed. Instead, it is maintained by a continuing chain of debt relationships of an economic kind. It is the existence of these outstanding debts which assert the continuance of the affinial relationship. So, right, like there's vertical power and then there's horizontal power, right? That's one way of uh, kind of simplifying it. 
So maybe that brings us to Gigi Pal's question. Is there an element of appropriation where the Alliance take this ego to even form the Alliance in the first place? So how does this question seems to be getting at how does this sort of horizontal power work? So I think part of the answer there is that because he follows up the question with the statement, it would seem that families are naturally descended and glues individuals by family. And I think this is kind of what they're trying to, they're, they're trying to sort of like um, criticize is it's not that you solely exist in the society through your lineage, but that there's, and Ken kind of talked about this in his example, actually, like there's a way that you're interacting with the society and you're doing economic and political things that are horizontal to that lineage. So um, I think later on they talk about like, there's the disjunction, actually let me see if I can find it because it's where they talk about child production or the production of babies, right? Um, where they say something like, uh, the production of children, the child gets, the child gets recorded through the disjunctions of the filial, but it's through the allegiance of the marriage that this continues. So really, this is the problem of like the filial being the sort of closing system, whereas the um, the allegiant keeps reopening it. And this is the way that they talk about like where production sort of kits off labor, labor responds to production there's a reflexive relationship there hopefully that gives some semblance of an answer are you thinking about 147 here in the production of children the child is inscribed in relation to the disjunctive lines of its father or mother but inversely the disjunctive lines inscribed it only through a connection represented by the marriage of the father and the mother At no time, therefore, does alliance derive from filiation, but both form an essentially open cycle where the socius acts on production, but also where the production reacts on the socius. So I, I had conflated, I had misused the term labor there. But yeah, that's exactly where I was thinking of. Thank you. It makes sense to me, but there's a moral dimension to like GG Powell's question i think which is interesting in the way that they use the word what is it appropriation where they take this ego and, and that's interesting to me but but i don't think the, that it's relevant to what what they are actually saying right because what you explained makes more sense and seems more in line with what they're saying oh yeah we can't hear you gg pal i'm sorry Assuming you are talking right now, we I can see your your light is green, so it looks like you are. So while he's typing, um, oh, there we go. I was going to say that I read ahead and was reading about the placenta of the mother. Oh, an overachiever. Enticing. I, I I'm very curious about what these 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 two have to say about placentas. <laughs> As am I. Add a teaser. You and Begum are, are, you know, you guys are. are um, I, I think we got to make sure you guys get on mic. <laughs> oh, yeah. But you guys are reading ahead. Um, 
kind of teach us some things. <laughs> but yeah, Muskie, I do think there's an interesting ethics to this too, because even when they talk about like the arrangement of marriages, right? So like the way alliances are developed, um, and how that does get seem to get recorded in the filial, but in the same way that um, in the same way that the filial may act on the the alliance, so too does the alliance react on the the filial, right? Or the socius acting on production gets reacted um, upon itself, right? By uh, by production. So there is an interesting ethics of something like arranging a marriage for um, political and economic reasons. Yeah, I wonder what uh, Deleuze and Guattari would say about, or if they would describe that ethical dimension, or if they're just content to sort of sketch out the way that it works or that it might work in this structure and then leave it at that. So they do write, Marxists are right to remind us that if kinship is dominant in primitive society, it is determined as dominant by economic and political factors. So in that way, right, like the the filial, and in this level, it even seems like this is sort of like a recording, um, or at least it, it, it's compared to a recording in terms of being compared to the socios, but... I mean, it, it does seem to me like there's an interesting ethical question of like, should marriages be arranged for economic and political reasons? And I think in these societies, part of the thing there is like, I think even Ken's example of like, um, you know, the caste system and women being able to sort of, uh, sort of have some mobility in it, although the, uh, the child may not. Um, speaks to almost like in some ways right like there's a level of necessity they're dealing with where like um supposing you're in a society and you need more land in order to uh, be able to have more food right there's sort of that necessity if marriage is the the way to do that then you're sort of like you're sort of bound up in that right doesn't sound particularly like pleasing to me <laughs> something about that that like being bound up in marriage in order to make it so that you can have that food or land or whatever something about it seems not good or nice or whatever pleasing uh but i wonder how we would formulate that critique using the sort of language that they have in this book or if we can do that and maybe that's sort of where the like you know, the right wing Deleuze people kind of sneak in, right? I mean, I might say that that, that ethics is so because of the um, the territorializing. Mm. So the ethics is also determined. Uh yeah, I want to be careful there. Not to say that all ethics is determined by all territorializing machines, but I think at least something like ethical obligation in that. Because like I, I, I've talked to, I have some friends who, who are in cultures where arranged marriage is still very much a thing, and they talk about it in this way where it's, 
it is for economic and political reasons. Um, for other reasons, like it's more, it's not you and your your um, uh, betrothed that are getting married. It's two families that get married. It's the different conception of this stuff. But I would say that that when territorializing occurs, there is there does seem to be um, also like a territorializing of the ethical, or at least of of a certain ethicality with it. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Not to be speaking in universals. Let me make that quick necessary uh, qualification so I don't get any angry mail. <laughs> but I, th- I think I see what you're saying. We're like, you know, I've thought about what it would be like to have an arranged marriage. And there is, but the only way I can really think about it, right, is from the perspective of someone who was born and raised in like, you know, America, in California, where that's like not a thing, right? So the positive side for me is like, well, that's cool. I don't have to like try to date anyone ever again. (laughs) But the negative side is things like, wow, I'm just being like shuffled around like I'm, you know, a resource to be used for money. And it's not like that's, it's the irony in that logic is like apparent to me, right? Where it's like, well, it's definitely true that even as a sort of American with all these rights, I am still being shuffled around as if I'm just a resource for money. It's just a different way that I'm being shuffled around. Yeah, I think in some ways this is actually still around and just looks different. Like, you know, I, I think I think in our society in the U.S. today, we can see instances of people marrying for economic reasons. For instance, um, one of the first questions you get asked on a date, or at least one inevitable question on a date, um is going to be what you do for a living, and right, and there's a way that that signifies a certain economic um, position, or in a similar way, like, and there are movies made about this, like uh, dating the boss's daughter, and like the political element of that, where both the father has a political interest, but also like, and, and you might say the father's trying to protect his filial. Uh, declension, but you might also say there's a political interest in um, in protecting the daughter. In my example, at least, I just bummed you out though, because now you're like, "Oh my God, do we still have arranged marriages in the U.S. in 2020?" <laughs> no, I'm mostly Maybe. stunned. I'm stunned that like such a Kantian sentence came out of my mouth where I was like, oh, I'm still just being shuffled around like I'm a resource for money. And I was like, oh, I, w- I wasn't expecting to get all into like if every human is a, a an end in themselves and not a means. But I did accidentally do that for a second. Yeah, I mean, even if we don't want to get into Kant, we can say like we can make the Foucaultian move and say like they're we're at least talking about obligations or if not obligations we're talking about um you know structures and the economic and political conditions that um you know we're kind of thrown into right that we were just kind of born into That's more like a comfortable wheelhouse for me. I I, I was I'm I'm just I was like whoa, <laughs> I, I yeah. 
actually Ken posted a diagram too in the um in the chat and that's useful too because um somewhere else in here and I think it might be um well anyways uh they had like they also mentioned that it's not just um there's a way that the village comes into play in these conversations as a third party so like even at that level right like there's the collective coming into play in terms of like uh people getting married and i think that's worth keeping in mind too so there's a question about um, the Bush paranoia. Do you guys want to jump there next, or um, are there any like oppositions? Awesome. Bush paranoia can uh, village pervert it is. Uh, Tiernan, did you have a specific question about that? While we're waiting for Tiernan's response, does anybody have an interpretation of what's going on with the the uh, the bush paranoiac and the village pervert? Yep, we hear you. I didn't really have a specific question. I was just kind of confused. <laughs> Join the club. We've got jackets. <laughs> it just says confused on the back. <laughs> <laughs> of course the f and the u are capitalized <laughs> that rules oh my god <laughs> thank you thank you this is what your patreon dollars will go toward no only joking we don't have uh, we don't have any interest in buying uh confused fu jackets but anyways so what i got out of this is like the bush paranoia and the village pervert is them walking out the example of like uh, the disjunction of something like the hunter and the hunted, well, the hunter and the, uh, the killed. So that is to say, like they're gesturing toward um, something they're going to see elsewhere, right? So they write, in short, as we shall see elsewhere, there's always a pervert who succeeds the par the paranoiac or accompanies him. Sometimes the same man in two situations, the bush paranoiac and the village pervert. So like there's the disjunction of like the hunter and can't be what he killed, right? Um, unless they kill themselves. And in that case, are they really a hunter, right? There's a weird sort of paradox there, but in differentiation, they seem to be walking out that some There's the paranoiac in the bush, right? So this seems to me to be like a sort of like a peeping Tom um, who is paranoid about getting caught, who could also be the same man as the, the village pervert who's, um, you know, in that sense, um, in that sense, like it's less paranoiac, I guess. It sounds like the village pervert is sort of like more just cool with being a pervert and not necessarily trying to hide it in a bush. What jumped out so I, what jumped out to me about that was that the village pervert has to be like in a village in order to be a pervert, right? Because you have to be like enmeshed in that sort of social situation. Whereas the paranoiac, the bush paranoiac is like, you know, out in the bush, right? Is um 
it, it, it invested in getting away from the village as much as possible. I'm not sure how to like what significance that has, but that's what jumped out to me about that example. And maybe then like we can, uh, the final part of this discussion might be walking out this paragraph. Because to your point, Muskie, they do write, but a pure nomad does not exist. There is always and already an encampment where it is a matter of stocking, however little, and where it is a matter of inscribing and allocating, of marrying and of feeding oneself, which is like going back to the example of the hunter and the kill. Right, yeah. So these, this paranoiac figure is, is, is sort of a fantasy of a hunter, right? Hmm. So maybe let's let's start from the beginning of the paragraph because we might be we might be reading ourselves into confusion starting at the conclusion. So they're talking about the project of coding the flows and how how to ensure reciprocal adaption. The great nomad hunter follows the flows, exhausts them in place, and moves on with them to another place. So this is still like we're talking about a nomadic hunter, and they're they're sort of like their movement with flows and exhausting the uh, the intensities of them, and then moving on. He reproduces in an accelerated fashion his entire affiliation, and contrasts it into a point that keeps him in a direct relationship with the ancestor or the god. Okay, so this seems to be like recording and um, declension in terms of understanding his direct relationship with, if not his ancestry, with some sort of god. It's like, I think of like Homer here, right? Where, Where great men trace themselves in lineage to great gods. Uh... Uh, a little bit more of a literary example. Uh, Pierre Clastres describes the solitary hunter who becomes identical with his force and his destiny and delivers his song in a language that becomes increasingly, increasingly rapid and distorted. May, may, may. I'm a powerful nature, a nature incensed and aggressive. So, right, we're seeing the way these codes are being floated. I'm sorry, these flows are being coded. And there seems to be like a level of like the, the hunter being territorialized in that sense through the declension of his lineage. Uh, such are the true two characteristics of the hunter, the great paranoiac of the bush or the forest. The real displacement with the flows and direct filiation with the god. What do you guys make of this so far? When you said like territorialization of the hunter, uh, that seems to like be what's coming up in these last couple sentences to me. Uh, and then uh, it turns because it goes from this sort of nomadic moving that sounds almost like I guess more peaceful than incensed and aggressive. Me, 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 me. Uh, yeah, and it seems to be like again. There's that way like. This person is understanding themselves through the through the socius of the the earth, right? So, like, 
I am a powerful nature, a nature incensed and aggressive. Such are the two characteristics of the hunter, the great paranoiac of the bush or the forest. So I guess I'm curious uh, with like the implications, like I get like how he comes about, um, but I'm kind of wondering what exactly they're trying to say the significance is like, might it be uh, their ability to kind of scramble codes by the fact that they're the Bush paranoiac or something? I don't know. It might be too early to ask these questions as well. Yeah, it's going on at 5 p.m. here, so unfortunately I cannot use that excuse. It's too late to be asking these questions is what I can fall back on. So what comes to mind for me is that there's a level of... So we're seeing this hunter and his relationship to his lineage but also like him going out and hunting, right? So like this seems to be economical. And so there's like this kind of alliance aspect here um, between him and the deer or whatever he's going to kill. And in that sense, like he doesn't seem to be, this seems to again be like less about it seems to be drawing out that relationship of kinship versus alliance and that um, he's understanding himself through through uh, nature, right? But I think too, like, I guess if I were going to walk this out, I would say there's a certain paranoia that comes with hunting, especially if you're not going to go kill a deer and something like a bear, where like you're arming yourself in with a certain, you know, recognition of paranoia, so that you don't become the killed. That uh, that helps. It makes sense, especially um, with the alliance affiliation. If it's uh, since it says in that paragraph that he's direct affiliation with the god, that maybe he might deny uh, other kinds of affiliation or something. Yeah, and that level of the encampment where he he seems, this hunter seems to be like, again, like, uh, you know, understanding himself through the socius of the earth or through that um, that mega machine, I think they called it, but through, through the territorializing machine. Actually, it sounds like we're reaching our time, but I think the rest of that paragraph kind of helps too because they, they're losing water again to like, the way inscription is working here and that there's not a, there's not a problem of um it looks like the objective movement of inscription is not suppressing the real movement of nomadism and although a pure nomad does not exist there's always and already an encampment where does it matter of stocking however little and where does it matter of inscribing and allocating of marrying and of feeding oneself so it looks like even like the encampment um, that you're participating in at some level still comes with an economic or and or political dimension that um, 
that that still is consistent with um, product. Uh, what was it? The socius falling, the socius acting upon production, but pr- production reacting upon the uh, the socius. It seems like even then, um, inscription and, and nomadism is not impaired by that. So then that's how the parano- the pervert secedes the paranoiac because when you're out you're out in the bush with your direct you know affiliation with God where you're like the you know spawn of an you're whatever uh, then you come back to the village and everyone's like well this guy's this guy's a weirdo <laughs> yeah I could see that. I could also see it in the sense of like, if you were going to do that kind of thing, there's probably a means where you'd go back and forth between like, you know, the the paranoia of of hiding, but also like the kind of owning it of like, oh well, you know, that's also who I am though. I'm I'm the village pervert, <laughs> right? So yeah, of course I do that. But then there's like yeah. maybe weird paranoia you vacillate between. The opposite so much as they're just they, uh, like, I guess you can oscillate between the two or you can be both at the same time. Yeah, it's the disjunction in the recording, right? Like you can, there's a way that they can both be written um, by the same subject or of the same subject uh, going through them. Okay, I think that clarifies it for me. Tune in, did that help? Yes. Maybe like the way to say it is there's an if there's an encampment, it sounds like what they're saying is there's a social context um, or some level of territorial um, context to inscription. Yeah, it's not like a social contract thing where there's this like group agreement but there is this sort of this territory that you are going back to and that territory exerts influence on the process of inscription yeah and you can still move between these two disjunctions um during that territorializing during that territory or in the space of that territory well i wonder too because they write like Claustray shows well how among the Gigaki, the connection between the hunters and the living animals is succeeded in the encampment by a disjunction between the dead animals and the hunters, a disjunction similar to an incest prohibition, since the hunter cannot consume his own kill. And so, right, like that sounds like the the exclusive. Um, paranoiac function of uh, inscription counterpoised with like the um the 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 schizonomadic disjunction where you the nomad still the nomad might consume the kill as opposed to um were not for this territorializing uh of them not being able to do so Right, because the disjunction ultimately separates the uh, the hunter from the consumed instead of them carrying on with the desiring machines. Or rather, the desiring machines carrying on without them. 
Well, I think with that, we do have to end it then. <laughs> but thank you all for being here for our discussion of Chapter 3, Section 2, and this review of Anti-Oedipus. Um, join us more this weekend on Saturday for our discussion uh, in literature on Borges, and on Sunday for our discussion on Simon Dan. Saturday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time and Sunday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time. So looking forward to talking with you all more.